Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If I could ask you to take your seats, please, we will make a start. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back, those of you who have been here all day. Uh, welcome, those of you who have come to join us for the Martin Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lecture this evening. This lecture is part of the work of the John Owen Centre. The aim of the John Owen Centre is to provide theological refreshment for pastors. Uh, this is my ad slot, so let me tell you a little bit about how we do that. Uh, we do that uh, with a conference like this. And if you've uh, not given us your email address, and I don't know how you've got away with that, um, but if you haven't, there'll be a sheet at the back. You can uh, give it to us, and then we'll let you know about next year's conference, which will be at the same time next year. Uh, we do it through study days, which are one-off days of intensive teaching. The idea is they're very low level of commitment. You appear and you disappear. Uh, there isn't really any preset reading. There isn't an essay to write afterwards. But it's like a, a theological shot in the arm is the idea. And they happen on Hebrew. So there are Hebrew study days, which David Green leads. Uh, and uh, he promises not to expose the quality of anyone's Hebrew on those days. Uh, so if you're feeling rusty and uh, afraid, don't worry, you could come and, and, and not have everyone know quite how rusty your Hebrew is. Um, and they're now happening in the north as well, in Halifax. Uh, Hebrew in Halifax. So um, if you are uh, from uh, the north, then do have a look at that. Details of those are on the website. And then the other kind of study day we do is the doctrine study days, which I teach, which we run here at the seminary and then in different venues around the country. And so there might be one near you. You might like to organise one, get a little group together. I'll come and teach it. Um, and they're looking at a, a doctrinal topic. We tend to run one of those for a year and then move on to the next topic. On your seats, you have a sheet of paper, study day's booking form. If you happen to have your diary and you know you'd like to come, the dates are here for all of those. And you can fill that in and hand it to Nigel afterwards and we will sign you up. Um, so, uh, or take it away if you want to have the information to hand and then you can email Nigel by emailing John Owen at ltslondon.org. Um, my usual joke, don't begin, dear John. Um, you'd be surprised how many people do. Um, but uh, the details of that are all there. Some other things to uh, tell you about uh, is the bookstall, which is at the back. Those of you who have not been here earlier on, you'll find all sorts of books on the bookstall. And this evening, it's a great uh, privilege for us to have Michael Haken here. We're very grateful to you, Michael, for coming all the way across uh, to do this. I know you're doing a few other things while you're in the country, um, but we're very grateful. And I thought it would be good to meet Michael. So rather than me giving you a biography, he's going to come and join me and we'll ask him some questions. So Michael, if you'd come and join us, not me. Now, Michael, you live in Canada, you teach in America, but actually you're from England, really. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of? Yes. Tell us about your origins, because there's, there's a bit of a story there, I think. So. Uh, I was born in Birmingham. Uh, my father had uh, come from Iraq. He was uh, Muslim, Kurdish, uh, to study uh, electrical engineering at the end of the uh, Second World War. Uh, my mother, who is Irish, uh, from just outside of Dublin, was working at uh, Cadbury's, I guess. Uh, outside of Birmingham. They met, married, and uh, so I was born into that home. Uh, my father converted to Roman Catholicism uh, when he married my mother. Uh, I did not know he was Muslim until I was in my late 20s. I had assumed uh, that he was Roman Catholic, and uh, they kind of kept that hid from, from the children. And it was not until I met his brother, who had come from Iraq, and found out I had a cousin whose name was Hama. Asked my uncle, is that short for something? And he said, oh yeah, Muhammad. 
And I thought, well, this is very curious. I said, are you a Muslim? I'm uh, thinking, you know, how can he be a Muslim? My dad was Catholic. And, oh, yeah, does that mean my dad was a Muslim? Yes. And so we discovered my father's origins. Amazing. And so how come you're now a Christian, teaching Christian theology? How did you get from, from that background to here? How are you, how are you converted? Um, and tell us a little bit more about after your conversion into doing what you're doing now. Um, we moved to Canada, and when uh, I was 12, my father got a teaching position at McMaster University in Ontario. And it was a day when uh, North American universities were giving tenured positions, uh, full professorships, uh, quite, uh, quite liberally. And uh, my father would have been a long time seeking one in this country, and so he took the opportunity. Uh, raised Catholic, but it's the end of the 60s. I got caught up in all of that radical... Uh, angry young men phenomenon that swept the West in that period of time. Uh, rejected Christianity. Well, Roman Catholicism is what I rejected. Got caught up in Marxism, what would have been a doctrinaire Trotskyite for a period of time. Uh, that began, I began to recognize that had very little to say to me in terms of life after death. And uh, got into Eastern religion. Never considered anything about Christianity and was trying to really clean my life up in some ways when I met uh, the woman who became my wife who was a believer. And uh, thought I'd go to church with her. I asked her if I could go to church, and uh, the Lord met me there in uh, the spring of 1974. And then how did you end up teaching? I, I, I sensed a call to vocational ministry at the time. I thought it was pastoral ministry, but within a year I realized it was probably academic. And... Uh, Always loved history, and so went on to get a PhD in church history. And was that in Canada? That was in Canada, at the University of Toronto. And uh, first taught at Central Baptist Seminary, uh, a couple of Baptist seminaries in in, uh, southern Ontario, and then in uh, early 2002 began teaching adjunct at Southern, where I became full-time January 2008. Hmm. Um, And we discovered a connection. Yeah, man, yeah, one of the men who was instrumental in my life, Oliver O'Donovan, was still in Toronto in his, I guess, the beginning of his career. Yes. And you had him as well. As my doctoral supervisor, so we yeah. both benefited from the same, same man's ministry there. And um, can you tell us something about the Andrew Fuller Centre? What's, what's, what's the centre? That well, you the Andrew Fuller Centre has a similar sort of mandate that you do here at the John Owen Centre, uh, although with a focus on Baptist. Um, I'm convinced that one of the great needs uh, for Baptists in North America, I think Baptists worldwide, is to have an understanding of their history. And uh, the Andrew Fuller Center is designed to to do that through an annual conference. We have a a couple of one-off conferences, uh, not only Baptist history. We're doing one this fall on uh, celebrating the French Reformation. Uh, It's the quincentennial of the birth of um, uh, Verey. Mm-hmm. And I just forgot his name right now, the first yeah. Pierre Viret. And um, so we do that sort of thing from mm-hmm. time to time. But the main uh, focus has been uh, Baptist history. Mm-hmm. We have a journal. And uh, I would like to establish, uh, funding is always the challenge, but I'd like to establish a small scholarship where people could come and study for two or three weeks mm-hmm. at Southern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now, Christian spirituality, your, your doctorate was on the Church Fathers and the Holy Spirit in two of the Church Fathers. Right. Um, but now a lot of your writing and your work is on Christian spirituality. Um, why that focus to what you're doing now? Um, 
partly was it was through the 90s I began. I, I, piety has always interested me. And um, I think it was 18th century uh, Baptist life, nonconformist life, that began to attract me in the, in, the, in the 1990s. I think one of the things that I began to feel was that uh, if, uh, again, as a Baptist, if, um, if uh, Baptists aren't interested in their story, nobody else will be. Uh, the fathers, everybody's interested in the fathers. Hmm. Um, you know, Anglicans, Catholics, Orthodox, and Evangelicals recently. And uh, there's always, there'll always be plenty of people to do the fathers. Uh, people like Andrew Fuller, uh, it's going to be much mm. rarer. Mm. And I think men like Fuller need to be remembered. Mm. So, yeah. mm. Mm. Now, your books, we've not got them all here, um, but while you're here, can you tell us, if, if people's appetites are whetted for Andrew Fuller, then this is a good, the Armies of the Lamb is a good place. This is yeah, this is, this, this is a selection of his yeah. letters. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm convinced you get to know people very well through letters that are not designed for publication. And uh, some of those were. There are some English journalists who agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not scurrilous. So. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and this one, uh, this, the, this the, is more of a of you. Um, well, it's, it's not it, you, it's the it's Bible. A, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a primer yes. on, uh, on spirituality. Yeah, the God who draws near. And then obviously you have a, a, an enthusiasm for things Edwardsian. You have to remember to put the S in there, don't you? Um, and this is a very dubious editor that I notice here. Mr. R. Strivens is the editor. This is, other than that, this is good, is it? Yes, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I trust so. Yes, good, great. Michael, thank you very much. We're very thank grateful you. to you. Thank um, you. We look forward to hearing you in a moment. Well, we could almost cancel the lecture and carry on interviewing Michael, didn't we? It was such an interesting, fascinating story and so many different avenues we could have pursued there. Um, Michael's going to be speaking later on on sweet sensibility, Andrew Fuller's defence of religious affections. In a moment, we're going to sing and have a reading, but first of all, let's join together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great praise for your grace and your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that we are, by nature, dead in transgression, dead in sin, utterly helpless and blind to the truth of the gospel. We praise you, therefore, for the work that you have accomplished in your son, the Lord Jesus, that you, in raising him, have made us alive with him, that we've died with him and risen with him. We give you great thanks and praise for your mercy in our own lives, that you have brought the gospel to us, that you have given us new birth so that we can respond and trust in the Lord Jesus and walk with him. We acknowledge that we, all that we have, we have received from you, from your grace and your mercy to us. We thank you for the work of your spirit in us that you do enable us to love you and to love our neighbour. We thank you that uh, you have uh, shed the light of the gospel in our minds, that you have renewed our wills, that you have given us affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. But we acknowledge that all of those things are imperfect in us. We confess our sinfulness that we would stand today under your wrath were it not for the Lord Jesus. And so we look forward, Heavenly Father, to the day when our recreation is completed on the new earth, when the Lord Jesus returns, when the flesh is removed from us and we are made completely new in the Lord Jesus with new resurrection bodies. We thank you for all that we've been reminded of today, those of us who've been here, about this complete renewal that awaits us in the future. So we thank and praise you. We thank you today, Heavenly Father, as well, for the messengers of grace. We think of 
uh, people who brought the gospel to us. We thank you on this occasion uh, for the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, for all that you accomplished through him, for all that uh, we continue to learn from him today and the way we benefit from his writings and his legacy. We give you thanks for your servant Andrew Fuller, another messenger of grace. And we pray that this evening we would learn more from considering him. We pray that this would encourage us in our own walk with the Lord Jesus and further equip us for ministry among his precious flock. So we pray that you would help Michael as he speaks, that he would speak with freedom, and we pray that you would help us as we listen, that you would build work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Our reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them They were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Well, let me begin by saying it's a great privilege uh, to have been asked to speak on this occasion, particularly the uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lecture. Uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, as I'm sure from many here in this room, uh, has been a very strong influence. And when I think of my coming to Reformed Convictions in the early 1980s, it was reading the first volume of Ian Murray's Life of, of the Doctor. And I saw there a completely different way of thinking about Christianity. And that ultimately issued in my embracing Uh, those theological convictions that he held dear, which we describe as Reformed theology or the doctrines of grace. And so it's a great uh, privilege to be able to speak on this occasion. My subject for this evening is uh, Andrew Fuller's defense of religious affections over against a era known as Sandemanianism. And I'm going to say a little bit about what Sandemanianism is, say a little bit about who Fuller was, and then uh, indicate something of Fuller's response 
to this 18th century error, but one that I think is still prevalent today in certain quarters, and hence my address on this subject is not simply an antiquarian address, simply relating certain aspects of church history, but I hope has application for today. In December of uh, 1967, Martin Lloyd-Jones gave an address to what was then called the Puritan Conference. It still continues today, today known as the Westminster Conference, on somewhat on what some might have considered a somewhat esoteric or obscure topic, namely the teachings of Sandemanianism. And if you've not come across that, let me spell that for you. S-A-N-D-E-M-A-N. I-A-N-I-S-M, Sandemanianism, and it's taken from the name, as we shall see, of a man named Sandeman. Ever want to apply the history of the church to the issues of the present, Lloyd-Jones argued that the errors of this 18th century movement had much to teach his hearers, for he felt that there were far too many in the evangelical world of his day who were replicating the central Sandemanian era, which is this that true faith can be held without deeply felt affection, that in the experience of conversion, it is the ascent, intellectual ascent to the gospel that is faith, that is saving faith. Other issues dealing with the will and affections are subsidiary. Lloyd-Jones gave a brief overview of the Movement. He noted that it was especially in the 1780s, the late 1780s and early 1790s, that Sandemanianism became a real menace in English and Welsh evangelical circles. Moreover, he argued that the key theologian, and we will see there are a number of individuals who write against Sandemanianism, but the key theologian who was raised up to refute the errors of this movement was the man he called, quote, the famous Andrew Fuller, end of quote. Now, I suspect that, again, in uh, 1967, uh, there were probably many in that audience who felt that the name Andrew Fuller was not as well known as it should have been, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones assumed that they might have known by describing him as the famous Andrew Fuller. In his words, Fuller, quote, more or less demolished Sandemanianism, end of quote, in a book called Strictures on Sandemanianism, which appeared in 1810. And so what I'd like to do then uh, this evening is talk a little bit about the emergence of Sandemanianism in the 18th century, sketch its main ideas about saving faith. Then I want to look at an overview of Andrew Fuller's life to give you some idea of who this man is, because I dare not assume you know uh, much about Fuller either. And then I want to look at his response to Sandemanianism and what it means to us today in our day. So first of all, then, the roots of Sandemanianism. The roots of Sandemanianism lie in the 1720s, 1720s Scotland, when a man named John Glass, who was a native of Octomoxie, Fifeshire, the minister of a Church of Scotland parish in a place called Teeling, just north of Dundee, came to the conviction that Christ's kingdom is one that is completely spiritual. And that is the the state church of Scotland, the Presbyterian church, was something that could not be substantiated biblically. In other words, he broke with Presbyterianism, one of the few breaks 
in the Church of Scotland prior to the Great Disruption in the mid-19th century. He established a church of some 70 believers, and over the next number of decades, 1730s, 1740s, 1750s, a number of what came to be called Glassite congregations were formed in places like Dundee, Perth, Edinburgh, and booming textile towns like Paisley and Dunkeld. The Glassites were never numerous, but they exercised a very wide sphere of influence. If we had the time, we could trace the teaching of the Glassites through their impact upon uh, groups in America known as the Disciples of Christ or Campbellism. Major, major influence. One of the figures who was central in spreading the views of the Glassites was Robert Sandeman, who was actually uh, John Glass's son-in-law. His dates, if you're into that sort of thing, 1718 to 1771. He was a born controversialist, is the way that Dr. Lloyd-Jones describes him. And in one of his main books, a book called Letters on Theron and Aspasio, he pretty well takes on every leading evangelical of the 18th century and also various Puritan authors. And it's quite evident that he feels that he's convinced that all of these men uh, got it wrong when it comes to the nature of the Christian life, and he has got it right, and it is his duty to tell everybody where they have gone wrong. The followers of Glass and Sandeman, who eventually become known as Sandemanians, uh, probably the most famous Sandemanian uh, in uh, history is uh, Michael Faraday, uh, the scientist. They adopted a variety of various, what they would understand to be New Testament practices, such as foot washing, uh, the love feast, holy kissing. Uh, in uh, New England, when the Sandemanians are established there, they become known as the Kissites uh, from that particular uh, practice. They insisted on the use of lots to determine in God's will, on unanimity in all church decisions. Nothing they would say is decided by the vote of the majority. Their insistence on what we would describe as trivia of church order set them apart from other evangelicals in the 18th century. They were determined to restore every detail of New Testament church life. But most significantly... The Sandemanians distinguished themselves from other 18th century evangelicals by what we would really describe as a predominantly intellectualist view of faith. Faith is intellectual assent to the gospel. In some ways, and this would be a very interesting study to, 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 uh, to follow, in some ways the Sandemanian understanding of faith is being deeply influenced by the rationalism of the 18th century. In some ways, they are a rational, an evangelical version of the rationalism of that era. They became known for their cardinal tenet that saving faith is, quote, bare belief of the bare truth, end of quote. Sandeman, who assumed the leadership of the movement after his uh, father-in-law's death, was insistent that faith becomes a work of human merit if it includes anything beyond simple assent to the truth of what God has done in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would take a passage like Romans 4, 5, in which he argued that justification by faith has everything to do with God instilling into the minds of impenitent men and women the belief that God gave his dear son for sinners. It has nothing to do, essentially, 
with the exercise of the will in repentance or the engagement of the heart's affections towards God. It is intellectual assent, intellectual belief in the truth of what God says in his word. Faith, he could argue, is given apart from any willing or doing on the part of the unbeliever. He would also turn to a passage like 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, to argue that regeneration accompanies intellectual assent to the central truth of the Christian faith. Namely, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners and has been raised again for our justification. And so he could speak along these lines. He could talk of the all-sufficiency of the bare truth to justify and give peace of conscience. He could talk about the bare word of faith that can give peace with God. Or justification that comes by bare faith. Or the bare gospel. And uh, he would eventually uh, move over to the United States and would die in Connecticut, Danbury, Connecticut, where he founded a Sandemanian congregation. On his tombstone, he is described as, quote, one who long and boldly contended for the ancient faith. That the bare work of Jesus Christ without a deed or thought on the part of man is sufficient to present the chief of sinners spotless before God. End of quote. And what uh, Sandeman had come to believe was that to safeguard the utter freeness of salvation, you had to remove any uh, aspect of human willing, human uh, affection from the experience of conversion. Sandeman was convinced that the actions of the will or the engagement of the heart and affections are included in saving faith, then the reformation of assertion of faith alone was compromised. And that's really, in essence, saving faith is reduced to simply intellectual assent to the gospel. And Sandeman's views were an all-out assault on much of what passed for evangelical piety and evangelical truth in the 18th century. As he stated bluntly, in letters of Theron uh, and uh, Aspasio, in his uh, letters on Theron and Aspasio, I have nowhere observed the Jewish disgust, and he's using the word Jewish there uh, in a, a derogatory manner to refer to Christian leaders, as we'll see. I have nowhere observed the Jewish disgust of the bare truth, or which is the same thing, the bare work of Christ, more evident than it is among the admirers of the doctrine of Messrs. Stephen Marshall, Thomas Boston, Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine, George Whitfield, John Wesley, and such like. And if you look at the list of names he's uh, attacking there publicly, it makes up a somewhat of a who's who of uh, Puritanism and Evangelicalism. Now, to be fair to Sandeman, he did admit that once you are converted, then affections did kick in, as it were, and uh, played a part in your Christian life. But at the time of conversion... Your affections play no role at all in saving faith. It should occasion no surprise, therefore, that many of those who embraced his view became very stunted in their Christian lives. James Haldane, Scottish Baptist evangelist and pastor, was quite prepared to admit that he found genuine spiritual life in Sandemanian communities. But he went on to remark their expansive powers, quote, are contracted and dwarfed. End of quote. Andrew Fuller, who we're going to get to in a minute, recognized there are things worthy of imitation among the Sandemanians. He particularly admired their diligence in studying the word of God 
and their desire to live under its authority. Yet he said their spirituality resembles a rickety child whose growth is confined to certain parts. It wants that lovely uniformity or proportion which constitutes the beauty of holiness. This kind of failing of Sanimanianism is very well seen in the experience of a very important Welsh Baptist leader, a man named Christmas Evans, who for a period of of years in the 1790s was a Sanimanian. He eventually found himself, as he put it, in the grip, quote, of a cold heart towards Christ and his sacrifice and the work of his spirit, of a cold heart in the pulpit, in secret prayer and in the study, and dwelling in the cold and sterile regions of spiritual frost. And there is a great uh, account in his, one of his uh, diaries in which he describes how he, after a number of years, he realized the awful situation he was in, and he wrestled with God on a mountaintop and for a significant number of hours until he broke through and realized that it was Sandemanianism, his embrace of this particular system of theology that was at the root of his problems. Now, Sandemanianism didn't go unopposed. A veritable list of major evangelical authors in the 18th century wrote against it. Uh, John Wesley, the Methodist preacher, wrote a book against it. William Williams of Pantykellen, the great Welsh Calvinistic Methodist hymn writer and preacher, wrote a book against it. Uh, the particular Baptist or Calvinistic Baptist, Anne Dutton, who is a fascinating figure, lived in Great Gransden uh, in Buckinghamshire, wrote a book against it. Isaac Bacchus, the American Baptist uh, author, who is a central figure in uh, New England, uh, wrote a book against it. Thomas Scott, the Anglican biblical commentator. And even the hyper-Calvinist William Gatsby uh, wrote a book against it. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones was right to observe, it was the Baptist theologian Andrew Fuller who drew up what many have come to regard as the definitive response to Sandemanianism. So let me say a little bit about Fuller and then look at the book and then see how that book is of significance for us today. Andrew Fuller is born in 1754. He would die in 1815. And so his life uh, occupies the latter half of the uh, 18th century and those tumultuous years at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the period of the Napoleonic Wars. He was the youngest son of a Robert Fuller, a dairy farmer, uh, in the area of uh, Wiccan and Soham in Cambridgeshire. His parents worshipped regularly at the uh, Calvinistic Baptist Church in Soham, which actually met in a barn, which was used as a barn, literally as a barn during the week, and then presumably cleaned out Saturday night and utilized as a place of worship on Sunday. And uh, Fuller would eventually become the pastor of the church, but it would not be until he did left there to go to Kettering in the 1780s that the Baptists and so on eventually erected a church building which stands today and is, is an evangelical work today. He was converted, and uh, his story of conversion is fascinating in so many ways. But he was converted in 1769, baptized the following year, and five years later was called to be the church's pastor when there was a division in the church over hyper-Calvinism. Uh, the previous minister, John Eve, who was a genuine hyper-Calvinist, he never addressed the unconverted from the pulpit, uh, there was a controversy in the church. One of the uh, uh, members of the church was habitually getting drunk. Uh, the issue of that was brought to the church. 
John Eve said the man should have some self-control and be able to deal with it. The man uh, argued that uh, uh, when God delivered him from his his uh, drunkenness, it would be a glorious day, but there was nothing he could do about it. He was replicating something of what he had heard from the pulpit in some respects. Uh, John Eve took the opposite of what he had preached, and the church reacted by basically asking him to leave. And uh, Fuller eventually was called to be the church. He was there for seven years. It forced him, that controversy forced him to grapple with the scriptures. He knew he had not, in one sense, uh, been ever addressed from the pulpit. He found himself doing that same sort of preaching, even though he, as he read the word of God, he knew it was wrong. And that, all of that eventually produced a very, very important book called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, which was an enormously freeing book for far too many Calvinistic Baptist churches in the 18th century that were in the thraldom of hyper-Calvinism. And I think that book lies at the heart of William Carey's mission to India, and thus Fuller, uh, in one sense, is kind of one of the grandfathers of the modern missionary movement, if you want to describe it that way. It was during those years of wrestling, pretty well alone in some respects, in Psalm, with the scriptures, that he finds the works of, Andrew, of uh, Jonathan Edwards, and eventually the, uh, Jonathan Edwards' Freedom of the Will, which, interestingly enough, Edwards wrote against Arminianism, and was enormously helpful to Fuller in responding to hyper-Calvinism. And uh, that, that is very instructive, because it tells you that there are, there are at least a few core principles that Arminianism and hyper-Calvinism hold in common. But we, we can't pursue that tonight. Um, he became, as I said, because of that book, a, uh, a key figure in the, what becomes the, a modern missionary movement. He, uh, he's a very close friend of Carey when Carey goes to India. That story, which you may have heard of, his friends here in England saying they would hold the ropes. Carey uh, indicated he had found a gold mine in India. And uh, if they would hold the ropes, he was willing to descend into the gold mine. And there is truth in that story. And Fuller was one of those men who, uh, out of love for the gospel, love for the glory of God, love for Carey. And his mission to India uh, stood by uh, William Carey to the end of his days in 1815. And uh, his uh, rebuttal of hyper-Calvinism made Fuller realize that he had great gifts as an apologist. And in the course of the 1790s, early first decade of the 19th century, he wrote definitive responses to Socinianism, which is Unitarianism, uh, that in 1792. 1799, uh, the definitive uh, Baptist response to Deism, the Deism of Thomas Paine, who... on this side of the Atlantic, was regarded as a horrific figure. On the other side of the Atlantic, he's remembered uh, not for his deism, but for his involvement in uh, the uh, American Revolution. And uh, not surprisingly then, John Ryland, after Fuller's death, could describe Fuller as perhaps, quote, the most judicious and able theological writer that ever belonged to our denomination, end of quote. And uh, C.H. Spurgeon would later tell his son Uh, about 70 years later, when his son was in his 80s, that he considered Fuller the greatest theologian uh, of the 19th century, Baptist theologian of the 19th century. Another of Fuller's uh, contemporaries, the abolitionist William Wilberforce, was also a great admirer of Fuller's theological abilities. 
in uh, uh, Wilberforce's son's life of their father, there is a great scene where uh, Wilberforce introduces one of his sons to, to Fuller. And Fuller had entered a fairly long corridor. And as he was coming towards Wilberforce and his son, Wilberforce leaned over to his son and said, Do you know Andrew Fuller? No, I've never heard his name, came the reply from the son. Oh, then you must know him, Wilberforce said, for he is an extraordinary man whose talents have raised him from a very low condition. And as Fuller was approaching them, uh, Wilberforce added one last comment. He is a man of considerable powers of mind, but he looks the very picture of a blacksmith. <laughs> and uh, it gives you the, the interesting contrast between his public appearance and the brilliance that God had given to this man. Probably uh, a man named David Phillips, a Welsh biographer, I think best described Fuller when he described him as the elephant of Kettering, Kettering being the place where he resided from 1782 to the end of his life. Now, Fuller encountered Sandemanianism when he was touring Scotland in the late 1790s and the first decade of the 19th century, the early 1800s. And uh, he's raising financial support for the Baptist Missionary Society, and they're having sent Carey to India and their work at Serampore. And in the Scottish lowlands, he encountered a group of Baptists known as the Scotch Baptists, and also sometimes called the McLeanite Baptists, so named after their uh, key theologian, Archibald McLean, who was a thoroughgoing Sandemanian when it came to the issue of faith. And uh, McLean was committed to evangelism, loved the mission in Serampore, gave generously, raised money for, for, for the mission. And so Fuller met with him a number of times. Fuller had him come down to Kettering. And uh, uh, it became apparent to Fuller that this friend of the mission was actually a Sandemanian. And uh, Fuller really did nothing about it until McLean used their conversations and their correspondence to publicly attack Fuller in a book that he published in 1797. And he accused Fuller of subverting justification by faith alone, in undermining what is a central bedrock conviction of the gospel. And when men include, he said, in the very nature of justifying faith, good dispositions, holy affections, pious exercises of the heart, as the moral law, law requires, and makes them necessary to a sinner's acceptance of God, it perverts the apostolic doctrine. It makes justification to be at least, as it were, by the works of the law. And these are obviously serious, serious uh, charges. Fuller had enormous respect for McLean. He obviously uh, personally would have felt betrayed to some degree by this attack. But publicly he could acknowledge he was an acute reasoner, a man mighty in the scriptures, but Fuller was never um, one to allow what he considered vital error to go unchecked. Truth, he could say on one occasion, ought to be dearer to us than the greatest or best of men. End of quote. And Fuller uh, responded on two levels. In 1801, he published an appendix in a second edition of the Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And then he published the book that I mentioned earlier, Strictures on Sandemanianism, in 1810, nine years later. In the first piece, the appendix, which Fuller called this, 
on the question whether the existence of a holy disposition of heart be necessary to believing. On the question whether the existence of a holy disposition of heart be necessary to believing. Fuller noted that when it came uh, to the nature of faith being a gift of God, and faith also being a duty of all those who hear the gospel, he and McLean would agree, he said. What was the difference then between the two Baptists? Fuller said it was confined to this question, what the belief of the gospel includes. McLean, he said, wanted to define faith so that it was a passive reception of the truth with nothing in it of a holy nature. He quoted McLean. To deny that faith is the exercise of a virtuous temper of heart is to refuse praise to the creature. McLean's great fear was that somehow there would be mixed into saving faith if it's more than intellectual belief, if it entails an act of the will, if it entails uh, affections of the heart. Somehow these would become the ground of their acceptance, the person's acceptance with God and not simply the casting of oneself on the Lord Jesus. Fuller could appreciate McLean's concerns. It is impossible, though, he said, to maintain that faith is a duty if it contained no holy exercises of the heart. Because, he said, God requires nothing of intelligent creatures but what is holy. Genuine faith has to have holiness as part of its nature. Otherwise, it's dead. True faith, he said, produces a holy life which McLean was ultimately prepared to admit, only if it's holy itself. The nature of the fruit corresponds with the root. Or looking at the same perspective from the point of view of the fact that the Holy Spirit is the author of saving faith. Fuller argued, whatever the Holy Spirit as a sanctifier produces must resemble his nature. The Spirit imparts a holy susceptibility and a relish for the truth which enables the recipient to see the glory of the truth and embrace it. And thus Fuller could write this about the nature of conversion. What is conversion? Conversion is a spiritual perception of the glory of divine things, which appears to be the first sensation of which the mind is conscious. But it is not the first operation of God upon the mind. It is by the unction from the Holy One that we perceive the glory of the divine character, the evil of sin, the lovely fitness of the Saviour neither of which can be properly known by mere intellect, any more than the sweetness of honey or the bitterness of wormwood can be ascertained by the sight of the eye. Fuller could say the very same thing a number of years later in a a magazine. He wrote frequently small pieces for various theological magazines. And this one, uh, somebody had asked the question, what is the nature of regeneration? And Fuller wrote this. That mere light in the understanding is not sufficient to receive the gospel will appear by considering the nature of those truths which it contains. If they were merely objects of speculation, mere light in the understanding will be sufficient to receive them. But they are of a holy nature and therefore require a correspondent temper of heart to enter into them. The sweetness of honey might as well be known by the sight of the eye as the real glory of the gospel by the mere exercise of the intellectual faculty. In 1810, as I've mentioned earlier, Fuller finally produced a book-length response to Sandemanianism. 
It took him 10 years. Uh, one of his biographers, John Webster Morris, who was a fellow pastor, knew Fuller very well. It took him 10 years because he reckoned that this work cost Fuller more labor than any other of his compositions. Fuller was quite willing to reckon, recognize that there was much in Sandemanianism that he considered worthy of serious attention, a point that I've already made. Sandeman's critique of uh, 18th century evangelicalism did have a point because Fuller did see that there was sometimes in 18th century evangelicalism an undue subjectivism, an undue introspection. Fuller could say this. If the attention of the awakened sinner, instead of being directed to Christ, is turned inward, and his mind be employed in searching for evidences of his conversion, the effect must, to say the least, be uncomfortable, and maybe fatal, as it may lead him to make a righteousness of his religious feelings, instead of looking out of himself to the Savior. Fuller knew this very well from his own experience of conversion. In a hyper-Calvinist context, when he was converted, in that uh, milieu, that, that ambiance, there was the idea that before you could go to Christ for salvation, you had to know if you were among the elect. So the first thing to do as a sinner outside of Christ was to determine, were you among the elect and was the Spirit working in you? And Fuller spent considerable time trying to figure this out and later realized the gospel call is to look away from oneself and look to Christ and uh, not be first engaged in a deeply introspective examination of one's heart necessarily. Nor is this all. If the attention of Christians be turned to their own feelings instead of the things which would make them feel, it will reduce their religion to something vastly different from the primitive, from that of the primitive Christians. Such truths as the following were the life of their spirits, the early church. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. We have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. But by the turn and thought and strain of conversation in many religious connections of the present day, it would seem as if these things have lost their influence, Fuller continued. They have become dry doctrines, and the parties must have something else. The elevation and depression of their hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, is with them their favorite theme. The consequence is, as might be expected, a living to themselves rather than to him that died and rose again. And so, in other words, Fuller is in agreement with Sandeman's critique of an undue subjectivism. But the answer to, to Sandeman's problem is not, the answer to the unbalanced focus on a subjective elements of Christianity is not to jettison the subjectivity of the Christian faith. Subjective religion is as necessary, Fuller could say, in its place as objective. While faith, Fuller rightly argued in the above quote, can never be identified simply with feeling, nor can it be ever divorced, though, from the affections of the heart. And Fuller was greatly exercised that if the Sandemanians had their way, they would exclude all holy affections from faith. And, and he was right, if you consider, for example, the, the life and witness of Christmas Evans. Genuine faith does not pertain 
to the understanding only, Fuller argued. And he made a number of points against Sandemanianism, and let me work through these fairly quickly. First of all, the idea of the Sandemanian concern that allowance of any subjective human element in the matter of salvation compromises the sufficiency of Christ's subjective work can also be applied to the act of faith itself. As Fuller rightly noted, people may also make their faith as the basis of acceptance of God. Whether you describe the faith as simple belief in the bare truth, or whether you include in it affections and have it more defined as trust, as Fuller would argue it. Such a move is rooted in the ground of human depravity that resists the biblical affirmation that salvation is God holy, God's great and gracious work. In other words, Sandeman's move to make faith a bare intellectual ascent could also lead to people trusting in their intellectual commitment as the ground of their acceptance. Second, if faith concerns only the mind, what difference is there between nominal Christianity and genuine faith? A nominal Christianity assents to the truths of the Christianity. But though the problem is with nominal Christianity, those truths don't grip the heart. They don't, reor- they don't reorient the, the affections. The so-called faith of a nominal Christian, Fuller pointed out, is really little different than that of fallen angels who were told in James 2.19, believe in the existence of God and tremble. For Fuller, true faith involves much more than intellectual acquiescence to factual statements about Jesus Christ. The faith that justifies entails receiving Christ, coming to him, trusting to him. And Fuller could easily demonstrate this, as he does, from a variety of biblical texts, like John 1.12 and John 6.34. Moreover, Fuller could say, if due to the heavy emphasis on mental assent, the Sandemanian conception of faith is indeed well-nigh indistinguishable from the knowledge of fallen angels, then the charge that Sandemanianism has a distinct tendency to dispense with the work of the Holy Spirit seemed warranted to Fuller. It is very interesting if you track through those most influenced by Sandeman, uh, for example, in America, the Campbellites. This is one of the major charges against Campbellism in the 19th century. It has no place for the work of the Holy Spirit. As Fuller emphasized, saving belief in the gospel never possessed the mind of a fallen angel, nor of a fallen man, untaught by the special grace of God, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. Third, the opposite of saving faith in the scriptures is not ignorance, which it would be if the Sandemanian view of faith were correct. Its opposite is a deep-seated aversion or hatred of the true God. Christ can state that unbelief rejects him because in the words of John 3.19, darkness is loved rather than light. End of quote. Or Ephesians 4.18, when it talks about the understanding of believers being darkened. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart. The ignorance in view here is much more than mere lack of knowledge. Does it not, Fuller asked, entail a deep-seated aversion to God? And holy things. And by way of support, Fuller turned to John Owen, the great Puritan leader. That probably wouldn't have made much uh, impact upon Sandman, who had pretty well written off all the Puritans, but it would have made a deep impact upon many in that day who regarded, as uh, John Owen was once called, the Calvin 
of England. Commenting upon the very same text, Ephesians 4.18, in his monumental discourse concerning the Holy Spirit, Owen observed, quote, the blindness mentioned in this verse is, quote, not mere ignorance. It is a stubborn resistance of light and conviction. Or again, to quote Fuller, talking about the same passage, spiritual blindness is ascribed to aversion of heart. The obstinacy and aversion of the heart is the film to the mental eye, preventing all spiritual glory entering into it. But, if unbelief is more than ignorance, then faith must entail more than knowledge. If unbelief involves an aversion to the truth, then faith must include a love and approbation of the truth. Fourth, knowledge of Christ and the things of God is a distinct type of knowledge. Knowing Christ, for instance, involves far more than knowing certain things about him, knowing uh, the dates of his life and ministry, knowing the fact of his virgin birth, knowing details of his crucifixion. Knowing Christ involves a desire for fellowship with him, a delight in his presence, a recognition that among all the beings of this universe, he is truly the most beautiful. The very essence of scriptural knowledge, Fuller could say, consists in the discernment of divine beauties or the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Without such an internal passion for the glory of God in Christ, the main goal of the gospel, which is to secure the glory of God, will be ultimately frustrated. To substantiate his point, Fuller turned to the chief mentor after the Bible in his life, Jonathan Edwards. And he turned to the treatise concerning religious affections, which we actually have uh, for sale back there at the bookstall. Edwards, he cites a long section. He actually cites, and uh, I'm going to read a, a little bit of it. Uh, it runs through about six full pages in Fuller. It's a huge section. It just takes it right out of Edwards. And we'll see why he does this in a minute. And just quotes this whole thing as a substantive rebuttal of Sandemanianism. In the section he quotes, Edwards is arguing that biblical Christianity has at its core a spiritual way of knowing or understanding that encompasses both the will's inclination and the heart's affections. The dichotomy that some writers on biblical spirituality have posited between the heart and the head here is transcended by Edwards. In Edwards' words, quote, spiritual understanding consists in a sense of the heart, of the supreme beauty and sweetness of the holiness or moral perfection of divine things, together with all that discerning and knowledge of things of religion that depends upon and flows from such a sense. And Edwards then goes on to make a contrast between uh, an understanding that is purely intellectual and the understanding the Spirit gives to all true believers. There is a distinction to be made between a mere notional understanding, wherein the mind only beholds things in the exercise of a speculative faculty, and the sense of the heart, wherein the mind don't only speculate and behold, but relishes and feels. That sort of knowledge, 
by which a man has a sensible perception of amiableness and loathsomeness, or of sweetness and nauseousness. It not, is not just the same sort of knowledge with that by which he knows what a triangle is, or what a square is. The latter is mere speculative knowledge. The other is sensible knowledge, in which more than the mere intellect is concerned, the heart is the proper subject of it, or the soul as a being that not only beholds, but has inclination and is pleased or displeased. And yet there is the nature of instruction in it. As he that has perceived the sweet taste of honey knows much more about it than he who has only looked upon and felt of it. Merely intellectual knowledge, which the Sanimanians maintained was the essence of saving faith, feels no attraction towards or aversion away from the object known. Knowledge of such geometrical shapes as a triangle for, or a square, for example, is unaccompanied normally by either a relish for them or a hatred of them. I say normally because there may be in our room and it's quite possible to think of a mathematician who has, is stirred deeply by the sight of triangles and squares. But for most of us, you know what I'm talking about. But genuine knowledge of God in Christ, in true Christian experience, is inseparable from a delight in Jesus and a relish for his person. Such a knowledge differs as much from merely speculative knowledge as the taste of honey differs from the simple understanding that honey is sweet. And uh, Edwards goes on at quite length on this subject, and I have a longer quote, but I will pass over it and recommend to you, though, Edwards' book, Religious Affections, which Ian Murray, I think, rightly said that if Edwards had written no other book but that one, it would have secured his place in the history of uh, of the Christian church as a classic in terms of biblical experience. Little wonder that Fuller felt, as he drew his strictures on Sanamanianism to a close, that this spiritual classic from Edwards' pen proved beyond all reasonable doubt and reasonable contradiction that the essence of true religion lies in genuine spiritual affections in which mind and heart, affections and understanding are as intimately united as heat and light in fire. A few concluding words which include an application for our day. There were other areas in which Fuller took issue with Sanamanianism. He picked up on the, the kissing and he made some remarks about that. He picked up about the punctilious adherence uh, to the letter of scripture with characterized Sanamanian churches. He picked up on the sectarian spirit of Sanamanianism that gloried in the fact that their churches were so small. And the fact that this must be the fact that they've got the truth because the the, the way is narrow and etc. But central to Fuller's response to the teaching of Sanaman and his followers like McLean was the issue of the nature of saving faith. Fuller rightly believed from the word of God and from his own experience that true conversion is rooted in a radical change of the affections of the heart that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. Due to the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the human heart, a presence that enables a person to believe, true religion from the very outset is an experiential, effective faith. These insights into the nature of true faith Rod as they were in the furnace of Fuller's own theological struggles and his 
critique of Sandemanianism are of perennial value. For over the past 200 years, Sandeman's intellectual approach to faith has found committed advocates in various Christian communities that have not embraced all the punctilious adherence to the various particulars that the Sandemanians embraced. In other words, his view of saving faith, Sandeman's view, has been attractive to a variety of groups down through the years. Alexander Campbell, Scots-Irish founder of the Disciples of Christ, died in 1866, was deeply influenced by Sandeman's view of saving faith and caused an enormous controversy in the 1830s, the 1840s, among Baptist circles and Presbyterian circles in the southern United States. In the last century, it's hard, it's difficult when you say that word to think of the 20th century, you automatically click to the 19th, but in the late 20th century, in the two decades immediately after Dr. Lloyd-Jones' 1967 talk on Sandemanianism, with which I began, Sandeman was cited as a model by various authors, again in the United States, who opposed what they called lordship salvation. In the words of one of these writers, writing in uh, 2002, in a journal, in the journal of the Grace Evangelical Society, Sandeman, quote, was merely contending earnestly for the faith. His thought on the issue of saving faith should be regarded as faithful to the teaching of the New Testament. And so in many respects, Sandemanianism is hardly a dead issue. And Fuller's view is therefore needed as much now as it was in his own day. Twenty years before the publication of the strictures on Sandemanianism, during the winter of 1790-91, Fuller and his close friend, John Sutcliffe, the pastor of the Baptist cause in Olney, Buckinghamshire, paid a visit to an Anglican vicar, John Berridge, the gifted, though quite eccentric, uh, vicar of Everton, Bedfordshire. After conversing for a while, uh, Berridge asked the men to pray with him, and the three men prayed together. Fuller uh, Sutcliffe later recorded all this. After their prayers and they were riding back to their homes, Fuller said to Sutcliffe, what deeply impressed him about Berridge's prayers was what he described as, quote, such sweet solemnity, such holy familiarity with God, such ardent love to Christ. This description of Berridge and Berridge's prayers epitomizes, I think, what Fuller regarded as the necessary corollaries or concomitants of saving faith. Measured by this standard, Sandemanianism's view of faith was a very paltry thing. It's not surprising that Fuller later reckoned that if Sandemanianism were to prevail, it would, quote, lead the Christian world, if not to downright infidelity, yet to something that comes but very little short of it, and to something that was a far cry from the piety of the New Testament churches for which Sandemanians like Archibald MacLean actually longed. Thank you.